good afternoon to you from sunny Southern California. I'm glad you found your way back to us here at the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. And in today's episode, we will be continuing the presentation of my book review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings. Now, before we get started, we have just a few announcements to make. First, as some of you, as some of you may know, we have been having some technical support issues with iTunes. Um, the feed for the podcast is working fine, and if you've subscribed to the to the show in the past or are able to simply insert the feed into the subscribe function in iTunes, then you're going to have no problem getting all the new episodes. Unfortunately, however, the show is not coming up under the iTunes search function. I've reached out to both iTunes and the host at podbean.com, but to no success so far. So. If there are any of you out there who are tech wizards um, who know how to solve this issue, please let me know. Well, in other news, I am going to be partnering up with my friend and atheist, Nicholas Brusacy, and uh, newly avowed nihilist of sorts, Brandon Christian, um, to discuss issues surrounding moral philosophy, natural law, and ethical theories. Depending on the feedback from that episode, which I'm sure will be both uh, aired on Nicholas's show, The Skeptic's Testament, and this show, um, maybe we can all be convinced to work out some kind of ongoing philosophical fight club, as it were. Um, so stay tuned for that and make sure to let us know how that goes. And as always, if you have any questions about today's show or anything you hear, you can contact me at my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen. That's www.logical-theism.blogspot.com or by email at tylervella at gmail.com or you can come by the new group page on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. Well, with that, let's dive into the content of today's show where we'll be discussing the chapter entitled Mainstream Theories of Disapproval. Enjoy the show. Mainstream Theories of Disapproval As I have noted about the previous chapter, the title of this chapter itself seems strange. I'm not sure why any of the content of this chapter would be called mainstream, since nothing about it is actually mainstream, whatever McAfee even means by that term. In fact, many of the arguments are quite subpar to what would normally be advocated for by even your garden-variety academic atheist but seem to be common fare among the rising trend of anti-theistic fundamentalism and the so-called new atheists. Footnote 36. One of the most pervasive criticisms of even Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and which could rightly be said of McAfee's book, is that it was so superficial as to make one wonder why he thought he had enough research done to write a whole book on the subject. In the London Review of Books, Volume 28, Number 20, Terry Eagleton wrote a masterful review of The God Delusion entitled Lunging, Flailing, Mispunching. In the review, he writes this scathing but entirely accurate remark. Quote, Imagine someone holding forth on biology whose only knowledge of the subject is the Book of British Birds, and you have a rough idea of what it feels like to read Richard Dawkins on theology. Card-carrying rationalists like Dawkins, who is the nearest thing to a professional atheist we have had since Bertrand Russell, 
are in one sense the least well-equipped to understand what they castigate, since they don't believe there is anything there to be understood, or at least anything worth understanding. This is why they invariably come up with vulgar caricatures of religious faith that would make even a first-year theology student wince. The more they detest religion, the more ill-informed their criticisms of it tend to be. If they were asked to pass judgment on phenomenology, or geopolitics of South Asia, they would no doubt bone up on the question as assiduously as they could. When it comes to theology, however, any shoddy old travesty will pass muster. There are always topics on which otherwise scrupulous minds will cave in with scarcely a struggle to the grossest prejudice. For a lot of academic psychologists, it's Jacques Lacan. For Oxbridge philosophers, it's Heidegger. For former citizens of the Soviet bloc, it is the writings of Marx. Of Marx. For militant rationalists, it is religion. Dawkins, it appears, has sometimes been told by theologians that he sets up straw men only to bowl them over, a charge he rebuts in this book. But if the god delusion is anything to go by, they are absolutely right. As far as theology goes, Dawkins has an enormous amount in common with Ian Paisley and American TV evangelists. Both parties agree pretty much on what religion is. It's just that Dawkins rejects it, while Oral Roberts and his unctuous tribe grow fat on it. End quote. If this is what is mainstream, then what is mainstream in the, in the same sense that Holocaust deniers are mainstream historians. Beyond this procedural critique, there are several challenges that McAfee raises as subheadings within this chapter. I will cover them briefly, as my desire is to spend the majority of the remainder of this view on the final three chapters, which finally arrive at the biblical text itself, and then move into the appendices that are new to the second edition. This current chapter deals more with what we could call philosophical or theological or even possibly theoretical dilemmas posed as objections to the consistency of Christian theism as a theological or philosophical system or worldview. The Natural Disaster Argument In the introduction to this problem, McAfee again reveals his lack of research in stating several things. First is that he introduces it by prefacing it with the classic argument about evil by Epicurus. But the introduction of this is only by way of preface to the actual problem McAfee wants to get to, since Epicurus's argument is an argument about evil in general while McAfee's argument is about natural evil in specific. While they may be related, they are not, by any stretch of the imagination, identical. Secondly, as John Feinberg aptly points out in his work on the subject entitled The Many Faces of Evil, Theological Systems, and the Problem of Evil, there actually is no the problem of evil, but rather as many problems of evil as there are theological and philosophical systems, and thus as many proposed solutions to the problem of evil as well. Furthermore, problems of evil posed to, say, theonomistic Christian theism in the Reformed tradition can even be further divided into the logical, the evidential, and the religious, or existential problem of evil. And even these can be refined into the pure logical, moral, or unattached problems of evil. To be quite blunt, McAfee's clear lack of understanding about centuries of discussions, both within and without Christianity, make his statements more autobiograph autobiographical about his own ignorance than anything else. 
Finally, because of his lack of understanding about even the most basic factors within the centuries of scholarships and discussion on this highly complex and robust topic concerning the various problems of evil, and thus the various answers given, McAfee makes the common mistake of positing the most elementary form as if it has never been responded to. It is as if this simplistic argument is to be seen as some new revelation, some wonderful mana given as a gift from the gods of skepticism through McAfee's inspiration. I'm sure this will come up again at another point, but suffice it to say now that the Epicurean objection has been so thoroughly answered that not many philosophers, if any, still maintain this protest, even the atheistic ones. This is due to the fact that it has been proven to quite literally be a straw man in that it only challenges a lesser notion of God, something that is not surprising since Epicurus wrote during the late 4th and early 3rd century BCE and was probably engaging with a very pagan conception of deities and would have likely been wholly unaware of the biblical notion of God. Epicurus would have been even more in the dark to the notions of God, God's attributes that were developed as Christians engaged in specifically philosophical and systematic theological reflection upon them that we have access to today. So when the concepts of omniscience, holiness, and or justice are inserted, only omniscience is really needed for the task in this case, then the question does not become if God could allow evil and suffering, but if an omniscient God could possibly have sufficient reason for allowing evil and suffering. Since proving the contrary is logically impossible to prove the universal of universal negation that such a being could never have sufficient reason would require one to be an omniscient being, it has been completely proven that there is no logical contradiction between the God of the Bible and the evil of the world. We will see how this plays out in the discussion below. So let us now hash out how the problem is actually posed by McAfee. He here summarizes the Epicurean objection, but develops the problem to apply not just to evil in general, but to natural evil, like the death toll caused by Hurricane Katrina, for example, and how such natural evil cannot be reconciled with the concept of an all-good, all-powerful God, even possibly a God who is the cause of such natural disasters. While many may not find this answer to be of great comfort, since McAfee posited this as a logical dilemma and not as an existential one, what Feidberg called the religious problem of evil, I will assume it to be sufficient to respond to it precisely as the logical dilemma of natural evil, since that is the argument McAfee himself makes. This version of the problem of evil is actually quite easily resolved, as stated above. McAfee states, quote, if a just merciful, omnipotent God existed and loved all mankind, it is difficult to fathom why such a loving creator would not allow, would not only allow these disasters to occur and kill innocent non-believers and believers alike, but actually cause them, end quote, page 28. Firstly, just because something is, quote, difficult to fathom would never be accepted by McAfee himself as a reason to reject anything outside of religion quantum mechanics, Planck time, relativity, quarks, Higgs bosons, and string theory are all hard to fathom. Does our trouble in understanding something count against it being true? Not in the slightest. In addition to this, it is naive to the extreme to cast God as the cause of disasters. 
While the concepts of sovereignty and freedom are hard concepts to understand, there have been centuries of literature on how God could work through means and allow even predetermined certain events to pass without causing those events to pass. To try and portray the biblical teaching on sovereignty as God causing natural disasters is specious at best. To go further, if we merely inject into the argument the notion of an omniscient God, that God might know certain factors and outcomes that we do not have access to, which would make allowing some disaster to occur morally justifiable, then McAfee can no longer say, quote, a loving and omnipotent God would not do blank, end quote. Now, McAfee must prove that such a God who, is also, who also is omniscient cannot have sufficient reason for allowing such disasters. This objection then slides from an impossible-to-prove speculation to an impossible-to-maintain contradiction. For now, McAfee must state a universal negation about what an omniscient being would do given its omniscience, and this is something that would require McAfee to possess the very attribute he says that no being can have, omniscience. Thus, no sooner is the problem stated as it dissolves into absurdity. McAfee then tries his hand at forming a logical syllogism when he summarizes the argument as follows. Premise 1. We have established that the religion of Christianity presupposes an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God and creator. Premise 2. If a creator knew all, saw all, controlled all, and loved all, said creator would not allow innocent men, women, and children, especially those who are too young to have sinned, to die by natural disasters or disease. Premise 3. Because we know that innocent men, women, and infants, Christians and non-Christians alike, do indeed die by acts of God on a daily basis, we know that an all-loving and all-powerful God must not exist. Premise 4. Therefore, Christianity, which proposes the idea of such a creator, must not be an accurate representation of true events. Page 29. Is this a logically valid argument? Does the conclusion follow logically from the premises? And is it a logically sound argument? Is the conclusion true and logically follow from true premises? I'm tempted to spend the time to show why the logic is not valid to begin with, that is, that the argument is actually a non sequitur, but the rub lies in the fact that it is not sound, so we'll focus on that instead. Even if we assume that the logical form of the syllogism is valid, we have good reason to think that one or more of the premises are false. Let us even grant premise one, even though I actually think that all worldviews presuppose the existence of God in order to provide an adequate basis for the laws of logic by which they even evaluate other worldviews. The problem then begins in premise two. How does McAfee know that such a creator would not allow innocent men, women, and children, no matter their age, to die by natural disasters or disease? My first gut reaction is to point out the very strange position of an atheist who does not believe in God in the first place, asserting what that God would or would not do. It would be like me saying what the Queen of England would do, even though I do not know the first thing about her personal character. However, beyond this, all that McAfee has done is to commit himself to sheer assertion. He has no evidence for that claim, and I see no way that he could prove it to be true. In fact, 
as I have stated above, if God actually is omniscient, then we would surely then we then he surely would know more of the factors involved in every moment of creation and might very well have access to information that we simply do not have that would give him morally sufficient reasons to allow said disasters to occur. In fact, we have a mountain of analogous scenarios for this, even in our finite sphere as humans. How many times have we felt indignant about the outcome of some event, and then upon discovering more information, found out that the event really made much more sense? When we judge the president's actions, do we think that we would do anything different if we had all the information that he had? It is unlikely, or at best, unclear. How much more so would an omniscient being have access to more information than we would that would possibly make allowing certain disasters morally permissible? How do we know that the alternative would not result in even worse outcomes? What is important about this response is that the Christian does not need to show what that information or morally sufficient reasons must be that would cause God to allow disasters to occur or a specific disaster to occur. They must only show that it is possible for God to have such morally sufficient reasons to defeat premise two, that a being like God definitely would not allow such events to occur. It is possible, given morally sufficient reasons unknown to us at the time, that God would allow suffering to occur. Footnote. Tim Keller has a very helpful lecture entitled, How Can a Good God Allow Suffering?, in which he shows that our inability to perceive or know all the reasons God has for allowing something to come to pass is at the heart of the book of Job. Another problem with premise two was discussed in the last chapter, and that is that McAfee assumes that all people who die, or at least some people who die in natural disasters, are, quote, innocent. Rather than rehashing the previous discussions about the sinfulness of humanity, I would like to offer a novel response to this critique. That is, that this critique is actually a straw man objection. A straw man is a, is a logical fallacy where a person sets up a caricature, weaker, or substantively lesser version of their opponent's position in order to more easily knock it down. The reason that this is a straw man objection is that it only objects to a lesser concept of the biblical God than what Christians believe in in order to reject it. In order to object to a position, you must object to the position as it is held by the proponents. The concept of God and man that is held by biblical Christians is that God is holy and righteous and just as well as omniscient and that humanity in mass is not innocent and deserves judgment for our individual sins, such that it is even by the general grace of God that we even still exist. The Bible teaches that God allows the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. If McAfee is willing to allow a God that is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, but ignores the other side of the coin about the holiness of God in contrast to the fallen nature of humanity, then he is dealing with a lesser conception of the relationship of God and man than what Christians actually believe in. That is, by definition, a straw man. In order for McAfee to show that the Christian conception of God and man is false, as he concludes in, the premise, in premise 4, 
he must engage with what the actual Christian conception is. Premise two is an obvious avoidance of that very thing. Thus, his argument is not only invalid in its construct and unsound due to, to a fallacious premise, it also commits a straw man fallacy. McAfee may think that this is objection is a haymaker, but it really is just grasping at straws. The true love argument. This argument states that there is a contradiction in the notion of heaven and the reality of true love. It is true love that is the proposed wedge that will break up Christianity and its doctrine of heaven. It basically states that the belief in true love, that one could not be happy without the other person, runs contrary to the doctrine of heaven in many cases. We can think of a husband and wife who are blissfully in love, but where one is a Christian and one is not. If heaven is the everlasting life lived in pure happiness, then how can the spouse in heaven be truly happy while their partner is languishing in hell? One of my many problems with this objection, as we will see, is again the fact that it is riddled with unchecked, uncritical, and unfounded assumptions, not only about what the Bible and Christianity teach about God, people, love, and heaven, but also about what true love is or should be. McAfee again seems to nowhere assume that there may even be flaws in his own presuppositions, nor does he interact with the numerous possible objections that could be made by Christians, such as what would make a person truly happy in heaven, though McAfee, I assume, has never been there. To be honest, I know that the response that I will give, I admit, will fall on deaf ears. Since McAfee is objecting to internal, quote, inconsistencies, in order to refute them, I actually do not need to prove Christianity true on these points, only that it is not logically inconsistent in the way that McAfee says that it is. While some of us may not like the answer given, it still makes this objection provably false as a disproof for some supposed internal contradiction within Christianity. Even if McAfee and others may not like what Christianity teaches, he still cannot say that his distaste for it is the same thing as it being logically inconsistent. Firstly, the Bible does not teach what even most modern Christians seem to think that it does, that humans will live for eternity in heaven, or that in heaven we will be 100% happy, or live in some euphoric, ecstatic state for all of eternity. In fact, the Bible teaches that heaven is only an intermediate stage between now and the resurrection, and after the resurrection, God will redeem not only humanity, but also all of creation itself, such that humanity will live on a redeemed earth in the way that Adam and Eve were meant to from the beginning. It does not say that we will be euphoric, but rather that we will live at peace in the presence of God with complete sinless innocence and shalom. To go further, I think a demonstration that R.C. Sproul used to give in his graduate classes will be helpful in our understanding regarding this point. He would select one student to play Jesus, another student to represent Hitler, and then a third student to represent the Apostle Paul. Footnote, here it is important to know that Sproul believes that Paul was, apart from Jesus, likely the most holy man to have ever walked the earth. He would then ask, where on this continuum between Hitler and Jesus do we put the Apostle Paul? The students would often put Paul closer to Jesus than Hitler, but they are in fact incorrect. 
he is closer, infinitely closer, in fact, to Hitler. Even Paul, by his own admission, says that at his best, most righteous works are like filthy menstrual rags. Paul called himself the chief of sinners and an, as an apostle as one untimely born. So Sproul would then point out that there is in fact a chasm that is impossible to bridge from our end between both Hitler and Paul at the one end and Jesus on the other. The gulf between the two banks is so immense that the separation between Hitler and Paul is negligible at best when compared to their distance from the holiness of God. What does this mean? Well, it might sound extremely harsh, footnote, which I think most atheists should actually appreciate since a common apologetic for atheism is that it is, if anything else, brutally honest about the harshness of life in a meaningless universe. Should they not also appreciate the backbone that it takes to say the brutally honest truth about the fact that when we are with God, we will understand just how unrighteous humanity actually is, even those who were most dear to us? Does this make me happy? Absolutely not. In fact, it is for this very reason that Christians want to share the gospel with others. But the point is well put by John Gerstner's own comment to Sproul during his graduate days under Sproul's instruction, that we will be able to look at our own loved ones in hell and rejoice in the real justice of God. Does this mean that we'll be glad for the fact that people are in eternal separation from God? Absolutely not. The Bible teaches that human sin grieves God, Ephesians 4.30. So why should we think that believers will not also grieve the sinfulness and condemnation of their loved ones? But it does mean that we will no longer look on our fellow sinful people as if they were, quote, morally innocent and undeserving of God's right justice. We will see God's actions as just and right. Basically, the true love objection can be responded to in the same way that Jesus did. Who will you love more? When McAfee says that a husband can only be truly happy if his wife were to join him in heaven, he misses that this assumption is is oblivious to the fact that a person in heaven is truly happy because they are in the presence of a perfect, holy, and glorious God, and not because of who else is or is not there. Again, one might not like the answer, but the point is that the objection no longer reveals a necessary internal contradiction. The Jesus on the cross argument. This like many of the others, is not actually a new objection. The basic summation of this question is another one. Who killed Jesus? In other words, if all actions are predetermined by God, and thus Judas was predetermined to betray Jesus, if the Jewish leaders could not do anything but call for Jesus' death, and if the Roman authorities could not have done anything but hand him over to the executioners, and if the centurions could only do what was predetermined for them to do when they tortured and crucified Jesus, then in what possible sense can we ever say that they are guilty of immoral actions? Michael Shermer, in a debate with Dinesh D'Souza, has actually said that it might make more sense to build a statue in Jerusalem in honor of Judas, since without him, 
Jesus would never have been betrayed and killed and thus die for our sins. So should we actually thank Judas rather than pity him? Due to the fact that this objection is essentially asking the question concerning the relationship between predestination and free will in general, and divine sovereignty and human responsibility in particular, to adequately answer this objection, I would need more space and more time than I have already committed to writing this increasingly lengthy review, or that you would probably consign to reading it. So rather than giving a concrete answer, since doing so would be quite lengthy indeed, let me give two brief procedural thoughts on why such an objection, as formed by McAfee, is entirely inadequate. There's a footnote here on some helpful resources if you have further questions. First, I would like to point out that there is not merely a problem for Christianity. This is actually a problem for all worldviews, but McAfee has attempted to skate it in through the back door of this already convoluted problem and apply it to Christianity as if there were only a problem as if this were only a problem for the Christian. Yet when we think of the work done by philosophers, ethicists, and scientists on something like philosophical, biological, or chemical predestination, in which some materialists say that our emotions, thoughts, wills, etc., are all necessarily determined from the direction taken by the very first chemical reaction that ever occurred in the universe, we can see that applying this as if it is a problem just for Christianity may be a bit overstated. So let us be aware that this objection may ask you to swallow a gnat, but you really must choke down a camel. Second, because of the nature of any discussion about sovereignty and free will will be highly complex, there are more than a handful of different conceptions of both predestination, divine sovereignty, and human free will, let alone how they interact with each other, I am inclined to think that any objection so simply stated and so flatly assumed will be guaranteed to err in some manner simply by its reductionism and oversimplification. To show that McAfee's objection is entirely inadequate, we can just think of the differences between views of Arminianism, Calvinism, Hyper-Calvinism, Moderate Calvinism, Pelagianism, Semi-Pelagianism, and others on predestination, not to mention their various views on libertarian free will, soft compatibilistic free will, hard compatibilistic free will, the freedom of the will, the bondage of the will, fideism, and everything in between. Can McAfee actually think that absolutely no possible answer has been given to the tension between sovereignty and free will? Again, this can only be due to an utter lack of research or understanding, or, likely, both. The Origin of the Universe Argument this was, of, this was one of the sections of the book where one marvels at how someone could so easily, and on such a fundamental level, misunderstand and misrepresent an opponent's view, and yet feel competent to write a refutation of it. Here, McAfee engages with what has been come to be called the cosmological argument. Footnote. What is also missing from this chapter is that there is not just one argument about the origin of the universe. There are the cosmological argument, the argument from contingency, the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument from design, the argument from fine-tuning, the argument from information, 
and the transcendental argument in relationship to the uniform laws of nature, laws of logic, and the existence of immaterial entities, minds, persons, and morality. All of these successfully ask the question, where did X come from? To illustrate the objection, he imagined a conversation between two people, a Christian and a non-believer. However, there are four major problems with this mock dialogue as presented by McAfee. The first glitch is that there is no explanation after the dialogue that would explain why McAfee believes that he has successfully handled the cosmological argument. While in his mind, he may think that he has thrown the mantle down and the problem with the Christian position in the dialogue is obvious, nothing is actually developed. It amounts to just bald assertion. He simply, or rather simplistically, places words, and very poorly thought out words at that, that come nowhere close to how any theologian or apologist would ever argue for God as the basis, as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe, and then just leaves it at that. It would be as if I imagined a mock dialogue between a Christian and an atheist where the atheist was a bumbling, angry, almost comically inept character, and hoped that just that dialogue would pass muster as a reasonable critique of atheism, or worse, as a reason to accept Christian theism. Second, the Christian position is totally misstated and misrepresented. Here McAfee has the Christian saying, quote, everything has to come from something, end quote. To which he has the non-believer eventually ask, quote, where did God come from, end quote. From here, he imagines the Christian response that God did not come from anything, and therefore opening the door to allowing the atheist to say that the universe then did not need to come from anything either. We will see in our next two comments why that digression is also problematic, but let us first look at the misstatement of the Christian position. No version of the cosmological argument states that all things must have a cause, i.e. that everything must come from something, but rather that all effects, also commonly called contingent entities or entities that come into being, must have causes. This is a drastically different position than the one McAfee wants theists to adopt. Thus, we can say that since we know that the universe came into being at the Big Bang, that the universe must have a cause, whereas if God existed eternally, would not be contingent and thus would require no such cause. The third problem that McAfee stumbles over in is his irrational mock question, where did God come from? This is basically the child's question, who made God? And yet philosophers and theologians have long recognized that this is a child's question for a reason. It is childish. What the question fails to understand, since it failed to adequately understand the Christian argument, and is actually a straw man of a lesser concept of God than the real Christian conception of God, where that being would be the result of another more grand cause, thus trying to disprove by God by redefinition, is that it makes the mistake of still thinking that all things must have a cause. Again, when we realize that only contingent or emergent entities need causes, and since God is by definition eternal, then to ask what caused God is like asking what shape are square circles, what color numerical sets are, or what the name of a married bachelor is. 
it becomes a nonsense question since God, who by definition is an eternal and necessary being, would require no cause. However, this is not the case for our contingent universe. The final problem is that McAfee thinks that positing an eternal universe will relieve the problem for him. To start off, the fact is that this is a widely discredited position in the scientific community. We know that the steady state theory of an eternal universe has been demonstrably disproven by the work of Georges Lemaitre, Fred Hoyle, Stephen Hawking, and thousands of other physicists and cosmologists, and that its disproof has been reconfirmed many times afterwards. But besides being manifestly false, positing an eternal universe also misses the point that even if other theories of the emergence of the universe were proven true, they would only push the problem back one step. Footnote, I am here thinking of things like string theory, membrane theory, or M-theory, and the multiverse theory. What is interesting about these theories is that precisely because these other theories these other strings of energy or universes would exist exterior to our own, the physical laws of our own universe would absolutely prohibit our ability to discover them. Dinesh D'Souza has pointed out the irony of the anti-theist who, in an attempt to escape one eternal god, must, on the back of zero physical evidence, their own absolute standard, resort to positing by faith the existence of an infinite number of unknowable, unprovable trans-universal universes. Occam's razor, anyone? They would still be, though possibly infinite in number, individually finite in matter, time, and space. They would not be able to escape the clutches of infinite regress, the problem of why there is something rather than nothing, why there are contingent objects, etc. Not to mention that hypothesizing moral natural, more natural causes does nothing to alleviate the problem posed by the arguments of fine-tuning, information, laws, minds, persons, thoughts, etc. within this universe. It would be like saying that cars arose by natural means without any intelligent source because some factory was fully automated. To which we could ask, well, if the cars were made by the factory, who designed the factory? This is not only the problem of infinite regress, but also the presence of information, fine-tuning, purpose, and design demand an intelligent cause. To say that the natural universe does not need to account for these facts by pointing to another natural universe equally incapable of explaining the emergence of such facts, and to do so ad infinitum, is like putting a bottomless bucket inside a bottomless bucket and expecting it to hold water. With this argument, McAfee ends up with empty buckets and wet feet. The Age of the Earth Contradiction This, again, is an objection so under-research in its understanding and so hastily written in its execution that my comments will be a kind of procedural refutation. Not only is calling it a contradiction misleading, since the Bible does not say something like the earth was created in six days and the earth was not created in six days. But McAfee objects to Christianity by objecting to one kind of Christianity, the so-called young earth creationists. Here he summarizes the position 
to a modicum of accuracy, though with not much clarity or charity in the sense that even the weakest defendant of this position would be able to defend against his slightly skewed and over-literalized objections, but never really takes into account any rejoinder that a Christian who holds this position might say in response, or what a Christian who does not hold to this view would say in response, like myself. In fact, his reading of scripture makes one wonder if he has ever actually read any Christian scholars or exegetical theological commentaries on the passages, or if he has only read the atheistic blogosphere criticisms of this view, since his treatment of it are so glaringly reductionistic. It is becoming more likely that he has not, in which case we should ask, why write a book on such a profound topic when one is not willing to put in the proper effort to research it. Nevertheless, by way of response, let me simply say one comment and then one expansion of that comment. What McAfee seems to miss, like he does in so many other places, is that Christian beliefs on some things are not necessarily monolithic. There are some beliefs one must believe in order to be a Christian. Footnote. This would be the content of basic Christian orthodoxy as spelled out in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Creed of Chalcedon. No matter how much some groups call themselves Christian, the fact that they deny such basic fundamentals require that they may be similar, but not really Christian. Here, we can think of the Christian cults of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, etc., this does not divide between denominations or between Roman, Protestant, or Eastern traditions since they all hold to basic orthodoxy, what Lewis called mere Christianity. However, there are many issues where Christians have disagreed with each other down throughout the ages. One of these is the age of the universe and the meaning of the early chapters of Genesis. Because of McAfee's inability or refusal to notice distinctives, he makes a blunder he makes a major blunder in making loaded statements like the following quote, if the Bible is to be considered the literal word of God and all of its statements truthful, then this should mean that scientific evidence would support such claims end quote i e that the earth was created six days less than ten thousand years ago. What this fails to understand is that the meaning of the term literal as used by Christians very rarely means the kind of wooden lip technical literalism that McAfee means, but rather means that it is literally true in what it affirms. It is then our duty to, deter to determine what it affirms, and that this meaning may involve symbolic, literary, theological, polemical, idiomatic, and stylized languages. This passage is a prime example of the multiplicity of ways in which the creation passage can be taken. There are several lexicographical senses that yom, the Hebrew word for day, can take. It can mean a day immediately followed by another day, or it can mean a day followed by an indefinite period of time before the next day occurs, so the time span between the 24-hour days could have been millions of years. It can itself mean an indefinite period of time, such as its use in Genesis 2.4. This is an account of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven, End quote. where the first six days are called one 
day. This is in the same way that we use the word when we say expressions like my day in court to refer to a long court battle. In this case, day itself may mean nothing like a literal 24-hour day, but can still be literally true since the conception of a day age is perfectly acceptable rendering of yom. In fact, while some Christians battle very heavily to show that Genesis 1 is proof for a scientific reality, others who take the text just as seriously interpret the text to not be scientific, but poetic or literary, or even as pure theological prose, so that what is being said are statements meant to reveal realities not about the universe, but about God, such as creator, orderer, sustainer, diversifier, establisher, etc., and that it should not be read as a scientific text in the first place. Footnote, for a thorough presentation of this position, I recommend several works by John Walton. His book, The World of Genesis 1, is helpful here. For those more interested in listening to a lecture than reading a book, I cannot recommend more adamantly his lecture entitled Reading Genesis with Ancient Eyes, which can be found on YouTube.com. Even others say that this passage, <clears throat> when it, uh, sorry, let me back up. Even others say that this passage and others like it are examples of polemical theology, a kind of contextualization for the heathen culture in which the Jews found themselves when it was written. Footnote for a lengthy treatment on this, I recommend John Curd's lecture series at Reformed Theological Seminaries entitled Crass Plagiarism, available on iTunes U. So, whereas many cultures saw deities in the sun, moon, stars, rain, harvest, animals, even humans themselves, the point of Genesis 1 is not to give us just-so stories, but to militate against those positions by showing that God is not in those entities, but rather created all of the universe, and thus to worship anything within the universe is nothing short of sinful idolatry. Thus, what we find are Christians, all of whom take the text very seriously and indeed literally, since they say that it is literally true in what it seeks to affirm, but not all would say that it affirms young earth creationism, who hold positions such as young earth creationism, old earth creationism, day age creationism, theistic evolution, polemical interpretations, and framework interpretations, to name a few. For McAfee to address a singular position as if it were a problem writ large for all of Christianity, and even a very narrow take on that singular position at that, is nothing short of irresponsible and academically inexcusable. The Modern Miracle Argument This next objection in some of its statements actually just... It, actually is just an expansion of the problem of evil raised at the beginning of the chapter. Why doesn't God do miracles today? Why doesn't he heal diseases or heal amputees? Since I believe I've answered this objection, why would God allow pain and suffering? I will answer the part of this objection that is brought up here for the first time. That is, why does God not do miracles today? Well, the possible answer is threefold. First, the common sense theological answer that miracles were not commonplace in biblical times either. In fact, what we see is that miracle clusters around important events in redemptive history. 
The Bible may give the impression that miracles were commonplace because they are frequent in biblical narratives. But what this misses is that the Bible tells relatively few of the events from those time periods. In fact, it seems to tell the ones that most clearly show God working. Think of it like a biography of Abraham Lincoln. Does the fact that one book mentions the act of Abraham Lincoln, the acts of Abraham Lincoln, mean that most of what happened during his life around the world all involved him? Not at all. In fact, it tells very a very slim view of all the occurrences or non-occurrences of that time and only describes the ones that are important to the narrative at hand. The author is selective of relative events. The same is true of the Bible, which spans not one lifetime, but thousands of years from cover to cover. So we may get the impression that the biblical authors thought that miracles were commonplace, but in fact, they wrote about them precisely because they were not commonplace and were thus awe-inspiring. In fact, we commonly see, even in the pages of the Bible, that those involved often doubted and had a hard time even believing that a miracle had just occurred. This is why the common presentation of ancient people as backwoods goat herders or something of that nature, who saw everything through religious eyes, is just historically inaccurate. The resurrection was an amazing event to the biblical authors precisely because they thought that it was one of a kind, unusual, and an unexplainable event. We also notice that God performs groups of miracles bunched around singular events, often the expansion of revelation, or when a covenant was being renewed or reaffirmed, or when a person or message was being confirmed and approved by God. Thus, we find them primarily at creation, the covenant with Abraham, the setting apart of Israel, the giving of the law, the preservation of the covenant with Israel during mass sin, the validation of the prophets, the ministry of Jesus, and the substantiation of the apostles as the foundation for the church. In fact, a concept common in Christian theology, even since the advent of the church, is the concept of the age of miracles. We can see this in, the one, in that one factor in determining which books were canonical was if they were written during an age of miracles where God supernaturally confirmed the message and ministry of the biblical writers. Those books that were written outside such an age of miracles were rejected. So the fact that the canon has been closed and that the next event in redemptive history is the return of Christ and the end of the world, we would not expect to see large-scale or frequent obvious miracles. Next is that the question assumes that there are no miracles that occur today. While I have not had this discussion with the author, my hunch would be that he would reject any testimony concerning modern miracles or after-death experiences as delusions, wish fulfillment, etc. So what the argument really says is there are no modern miracles and any evidence for a miracle must be rejected because miracles cannot happen. Therefore, the evidence must be false. Therefore, miracles do not occur today. Basically, it presumes the truth of naturalism and the non-existence of miracles, and then demands that the only evidence that it will allow as possible evidence for miracles is evidence that also assumes the truth of naturalism. That is, unless the evidence adheres with naturalism, 
thus implicitly rejects supernaturalism, it will not even be considered. Therefore, we can never actually prove a miracle because the evidence is never admissible in the court of skepticism. It feigns at being objective, but stridently refuses to allow any evidence that would contradict it. It assumes the impossibility of miracles and then sets the standards so that all contrary evidence is disallowed before even being allowed to be presented. Finally, there is the presumption that God would do a certain kind of miracle just to prove to people his existence, as if God were a kind of dancing monkey there just to prove to us that he exists. While this may not prove much to McAfee, we could ask what level of hubris it must take for a created being who has dedicated his life to disproving God to demand that the God of the universe prove himself to them to say as a finite person what an infinite omniscient being should do in order to appease our sinful desires is the pinnacle of prideful autonomy is it any wonder that god does not bow the knee to such mutinous demands disproving the concept of an infallible god McAfee claims that this final objection is, quote, a relatively simple concept regarding the ability of God to make, con to make mistakes, end quote, page 40. The import of this objection is that the Bible we are told that God is perfect and fallible, but then also find passages that seem to suggest that God repents, changes his mind, and feels jealousy. McAfee claims that if God were infallible, then so too would his creation be infallible, quote, not only spiritually, but physically, end quote, page 41. There are two things that are clear from this objection. The first is that McAfee has zero understanding of anthropolog anthropological language in reference to God. That is, we must, by necessity, talk about God in human terms. In fact, theologians have for millennia recognized that since God is transcendent, all language about God must be analogical. Thus, the passages used by McAfee to try and show that God can change his mind, show remorse, repent, etc., can be easily explained by understanding that, they, that these are merely human ways of describing the actions of God. There are furthermore complicated explanations that go into things like illocu illocutionary language and speech acts, but space is here too limited to explore them for now. Footnote, I recommend the work of John R. Cyril, Cyril or John L. Austin on the, these linguistic studies and philosophy of language, or John Curid and others in its application to biblical interpretation. The second is that he seems to make the logical conjecture that a perfect being would necessarily create a physically perfect world. This again demands that an omniscient God could not have sufficient reason for creating a universe, just as we find it. As we have seen previously, this is not actually a necessary corollary. We could show this by simply asking, why can't a perfect God have created, for sufficient reasons, a world chock full of imperfections? In fact, some Christians have, in regards to sin, said an imperfect world is actually a better candidate for what philosophers call the best possible world, 
and that its function is to drive our consciences to an understanding of our need for God and that the ability to sin or perform evil is a necessary aspect of our having free will, true love, and to preserve what makes us human and not robots or angels. It would also reveal more to us about the nature of God. How would God reveal that he is just if there was no need for justice? How would he show us that he was merciful if there was no need for mercy? How would he show that he is gracious or sacrificial, sacrificially loving? Thus, by extension, we could even say that it is not only possible for God to have created an imperfect world for these and other similar reasons, but also likely that he would have. What McAfee, McAfee's objection amounts to is not a problem within Christianity, but actually for McAfee's own anti-theistic fundamentalism that forces him to demand contradictions where there none exist. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Join us again next time as we continue our review of McAfee's book when we look at the chapter entitled Contradictions in Scripture and in Practice. As always, if you have any questions, you can contact me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. That's www-theism.blogspot.com or by email at tylervella at gmail.com or come by the new group page on Facebook at www.facebook.com groups slash the freed thinker podcast. Thanks again for joining us and may God shine his face upon you and give you peace. Have a great weekend, everybody.